Welcome to the Moving Beyond Your Tribe, where we talk about new ideas, new words, new approaches to step out of our comfort zones, to break free from our assumptions and create bridges to new opportunities. Hi, I'm your host, Torin, a multi-potentialite and political agnostic with a passion to bring all sides together through dynamic and thoughtful conversations. On this podcast, I'll bring on notable and diverse guests from all walks of life to give us tools to help us be better leaders and colleagues, create stronger business culture, boost our productivity and profits, create impact on our society with our message, and more importantly, help us to be a better mensch. Now let's get started. I'm really excited to have on this week uh, Mikhail Goko, who is an MBA from Booth and has worked on strategy, marketing, and entrepreneurship, and has a real passion now to help uh, French Africans to rise up to be the best they can be. And so she's actually started a organization with a friend of hers that's called Rise Up Concierge, which has the mission to reveal talent and take them to the next level. And I'm really excited to have her on because this is a continuation of the conversation we had with Myrtle on how do we talk about diversity and how do we listen and bridge this gap with words. And so I just want to say welcome, Mikael. Welcome, Torin. Thank you. Thank you for having me. <laughs> so I just wanted to start right about, to tell a little bit about yourself because I think this is where it comes back to what Myrtle was talking about. A black community is not monolithic. We have several different flavors of where our upbringing is and all of that in its experience creates the person that you are. And so I thought if you could just tell a little bit about yourself, where you grew up and how did you come to France and, and so forth? Uh, yeah, so I I am from Congo, Brazzaville. I was born there um, and I moved to France with my family at the age of two. We landed in France in a city called Rennes, in, in the west side of France, in a region called Brittany. That's where I grew up. My family was the, uh, the only black family in our neighborhood. We were fortunate in our landing that we uh, find ourselves living in public housing, but in a new kind of mixed-use apartment development complex, where we were mixed with other type of level of inco- uh, income families. But back then in Brittany, there was not many black people, Africans, immigrants. So we were the only black families there for about 10 years. So I pretty much was the only black. (laughs) I was pretty much the only black kid in my class until high school. You know, it's interesting because I don't have negative memories of that upbringing, that environment where I was the only black child. I only remember more of so feeling sometime a, a, a miss or a gap of a certain type of connection with friends that may not understood uh, my context, my familial context and my social context because my parents divorced when I was very young. And also back then, divorces were not so common, not only in the black community, but also in, in the white community in France. So it was kind of very unique on that sense. And my family, my mom raising us by herself, uh, we were five, went through you know, economic struggles to, to raise us and find the means to provide for us. My parents, when they left Congo, they were kind of uh, up and rising professionals working for government and they landed uh, an opportunity to pursue their studies or their training in France. And that's how they got a scholarship from the government to work in France. Yeah, so it was kind of a cultural and social kind of shock for them, kind of adjusting in that environment, probably that led to their separation. But for me, 
I, I had great experience remembering uh, my friends because I knew them from kindergarten, basically up until pretty much until high school. So it was a very cocoon environment. But recently, my mom actually shared with me that I experienced a lot of racist behaviors and and attacks from other kids at school. I would come home with um, things that happened and uh, dirt in my hair, things like that. And uh, but I don't remember it. I totally blocked it. I don't remember it at all. We had this conversation because my son is five and um, I was looking for a school to register him. And there's a fantastic school that near our, our house. And, uh, but my, my concern was the lack of diversity in that school. And, and, but I was like, you know, it's a great school. So, you know, we'll, we'll go for it. But my mom, for the first time, shared with me those experiences that she saw me having. And, uh, but I don't remember it. Isn't that interesting how you don't remember mm-hmm. Do you remember the racism when you went to university? Yes, exactly. That's where my first memory really of racism is very vivid. I started my studies doing a two-year associate degree uh, in a small town on the coast of Brittany called Samalo. That was the first time in my life that I really experienced directly racism. I've seen expression of discrimination to my mom as she was going through different activities going in society and the world. But to me personally, I never felt that that was directed against me. I, like a very raw ex- experience, was starting school, finding housing in a house where a bunch of classes I found uh, accommodation and it was a roommate uh, setting. And they had one w- room left. And um, they said, yeah, you can come. The, the owners was like, okay, you can move in. I moved in. And then the owner came and realized I was black. And they were like, no, 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 <laughs> you cannot stay here. And I got to move out. Wow. And that was my first uh, experience. And also the look and um, going to a, walk into a bus or, you know, just walking environment in the city or even at school, like, and seeing people, realizing that people would see me, not as Mikael, like everybody has what see me in my environment, but see me as a black person first. And then you could see the difference, how people apprehended and, 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 and interacted with me based on that. So that was my first vivid experience of racism. I didn't really like my experience in this town for the two years. And I blocked out also those memories. I don't, I barely remember <laughs> a lot of experiences from that, those two years, because of that, the situation that I found myself. So I, really, I felt really uncomfortable in, in this town. But it's interesting because you, from there, you were so privileged. You were really smart and you got yourself into uh, to Booth, which is in Chicago, which is one of the leading marketing MBA programs in the country. Being there and seeing the contrast, because now you live in Atlanta, is that correct? Yes, correct. Yes. In Atlanta, you're married uh, with an uh, African-American from the U.S. Is that correct? Or uh, My husband is actually from Nigeria. So you're black mm-hmm. ethnic, as my friend Myrtle would call you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, it's yeah. all about these terms, getting quiet. <laughs> so, and I think the conference there is possibly why you started Rise Up. And I thought maybe mm-hmm. you could tell us about rise up because I think that kind of culminates your whole experience from your from your school and stuff. Yes, I think so when I, I landed to Booth, it really was like a, a ticket to the moon for me. It, it was a dream come true, something that I worked hard, very hard to 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 accomplish, but still yet felt unreal. Starting there, I was like at this imposter syndrome, like kicking very hard. I was like, they're going to realize they made a mistake. <laughs> they're going to find out that I was just like, I don't know, very creative and like presenting myself so well that, you know, they're going to find out I can't, I don't belong here. Because my classmates came from MIT, Harvard, 
had jobs that I dreamed of having before business school. I was an iconographer in advertising prior to going to business school. And I started a, a small translation business with a friend. That was my first um, stint into the entrepreneurship world. But I, I didn't feel myself as somebody who was top talent. I, nobody ever projected that image on me. Nobody ever talked to me as, as I had high potential. So it was really a matter of me telling myself, I can do this. I dream about that. And I, why would, should I be ashamed of dreaming about this? And if I do the work and I invest myself, why cannot I do that? And it really took me a shift of mindset to do that. That when I land into booths, then uh, people who help me, I, I work with a coach who for a year and a half that prepped me, not only through the application process, but also mentally kind of shifting the mindset that I had of me before and me who needed to be, to be uh, that candidate and that MBA student. But landing business school, I arrived in a world that I was not prepared for. I didn't understand the code. I was from a socially very different background than most of my classmates. Not only from being black or, you know, African-American classmates could relate to probably certainly with the coming from places where they don't see a lot of people who go to top business school and being in that environment is a change. But me, I had to deal with that level and also the fact that I was coming from a different country that have a different culture. And I was from Africa too, but a Francophone African country culture. So there was several levels of... Um, there are many levels. Because this is pause of all the identities you've had there. It's like you were Congo, then you're Francophile, right? You're like your Francophile. Mm-hmm. Then you travel to the US with those two identities coming yes. to the US. And when people probably look at you, which is what I liked about what Myrtle was saying is a lot of people just think of black as black. Like you don't think about all the nuances, but you've had all these experiences. Mm-hmm. You're not an African-American from the U.S., you know? So mm-hmm. it's a lot to take in. Yes, it's a lot to navigate and find your identity in the mix of all that, figure out your own career. And uh, why led us to, to, to start Rise Up with my friend Awa is that so I and I met when we were applying to business school and we were going to those MBA events that the schools were organizing to introduce the programs and, and everything. And we find ourselves being the only black girls at those events and also be the only, most often, most people not coming from the French top schools and with a certain profile and, and very unique self-demographic who um, are coming from the school. So we were kind of odd. So we clicked quickly just like, clicked and kind of found more mini mastermind together and kind of trade and help each other, support each other. I ended up going to business school a year before her in Chicago and she ended up going to Kellogg. So we were in the same city that kind of straightened her bound and her friendship. And after we started Booth, we started to, to see like, well, there was other Africans at Booth and there at Kellogg as well, but they were all from Anglophone countries. We were looking for the Africans from Francophone countries who could be in those programs. I was the only Francophone in my class. I think it was the same for her. And we started going back. So just to make sure, so Francophone, Mm, how do you define yourself as a French? French African. Yeah, the French African, yeah. It's interesting because it's like Mm. you've got African-American. So for you, Mm. I was going to term you, it's Francophone. Yes, I'm French. French. Yes, because in Francophone, I can include my African identity into it as well. Right. right. And in French only, and that's always a question when people ask me, where are you from? For long, I say I'm from Congo, but then they realize I barely lived in Congo. I lived in Congo, I was two, and I, my first time I returned, I was 25. 
when I tell them, well, well, you're actually, you're French. And I actually, in America, that I realized that people will see me as French. And I felt French when I was in France. In France, right. growing up, I felt more like a foreigner. Also because I become French citizen at the age of 18. Although I was there since the age of two, but we became citizen only at 18 because it was so it's complicated in France. So it kind of forged my identity as a foreigner. And plus the context of discrimination, all those things that can happen, makes kind of reinforce that feeling. And it's only when I left France that I really felt French because I realized that my cultural code, the part of the place that I call home is France. The I Franks. So that's what you call yeah. yourself Francophone. But I'll probably mm-hmm. call you French African because that kind of fits. Exactly. And Francophone includes my African identity because I still have that in me. And so that's that's why I feel like Francophone kind of a, a better representation of who I am because I feel like I'm French and global and African and it kind of gets to the whole thing. You started Rise Up. Mm-hmm. It was a really great. So it's a mentorship program to help people to see beyond where they are right now. And, I, and I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about it because you started that from your experience with school, possibly giving people a dream to help them look higher, get to some of the best schools because you saw that you could do it. You created yeah. a roadmap for them. And I just want you to tell us a little bit about Rise Up, this organization that you have now. Yeah, so we, we, we wanted to create something that not only will help people give the tool that we are, we've been, we grew up thinking that education was everything to get to, to emancipate yourself economically. So get a degree, better, better degree you get, you find a career, you find a job and everything. But we realized. You did that. Uh, you, did that. you went, you got to GE. You yes, but I had to, in the context of America and the US, but in the context of France, it's different. Yeah. In France, I realized that once I didn't do the right school, the right education, because if you don't go to a top school in France, there's a whole sea of jobs that are not available, accessible to you. And some companies like GE, I wouldn't have been hired by GE France if I had applied out of college because I was not from the selected schools and the part the profile that the people are replicate themselves into. But I think but, that's everywhere because that's like in Norway too. If you're not in the top schools in Norway, you don't, there's certain jobs you don't get. <laughs> yes. And in America, you have that too, but it's more balanced. Like uh, and when I joined GE, I joined the leadership development program where they hire MBAs to join and, and kind of go through this leadership development program of two years. You go through global assignments, high visibility projects. and But they they hire people from top school and not top schools. I had here in my group who didn't come from top schools. So there's still this blend of an opportunity that is not as strongly bias in, that you could find in France. So recently we, we created Rise Up because we realized that one, the environment in France is very challenging for minorities and, and to rise, to create the career that they want. But if you think you only need your education to succeed, then you you lost because you really need the right mindset too. And the mindset shift is so important and critical to succeed in general. But when the wind is going against you, it's really your, your arms to succeed. For my case, for example, is that shift of mindset that get me to think beyond the limitation that I was seeing around myself and thought about doing an MBA, et cetera. And I, when we started doing presentation about informing minorities in France about MBAs, opportunities, et cetera, we quickly realized that people didn't see us anymore as one of them. They see us as exceptionally talented and smart who 
maybe also have some mean financial means to do it. But the reality was I was broke. I didn't have any money. I didn't have, I didn't have anything to do what I did, but I did it anyway. And if it was not for the mindset shift that I had to work on myself first, after equipping myself with the right tools and preparation to succeed on the application. But the beginning was really the mindset. That's the reason why we created Rise Up because we don't know what we don't know. And a lot of us people like me in France, like I always say my friend, I almost went through my life without knowing what my life was about. I could have gone a very different life and never know that I would have lived the life that I live today because I wouldn't have tried it. I wouldn't even think it was possible with the whole mindset that I had. We felt like it was critical to address that part because that's a pretty critical part of success that is not talked about in France. And that is so critical, especially when you have, you're navigating against the wind, when you have to build yourself an environment that is not um, easy to create your opportunities. And we want it also to be a place where we can create a pipeline and accelerate a pipeline of talents that are companies and entrepreneurs or VCs who are looking for talented entrepreneurs or who are looking for talented professionals. We have people that have gone through our programs that are not only skilled, but also have the right mindset to succeed and how I able to navigate those, those, those seas. It's interesting you say that because I like that you're navigating against the wind, which is really about systematic racism in a way. Mm-hmm. And I think through systematic racism and through our conversations, what I've realized is that you lose kind of a hope in that. And what really got you to the next level was to incorporate hope in your mindset and to yes. support it. And how, and how do you bring hope to someone when it is such a systematic racism? It's so, so critical. And, and it was really the pivotal point for me is when I started to dream and really not dream just based on what I've seen around me. Because before my aspiration was to succeed in, in my professional life was just to have a job that was not too boring that I would not feel like, oh my God, oh my God, every day. But just have a stable situation, just have a, a city, we call it in France, it's like a permanent employment contract. That was, kind of, that was the, the ultimate dream. And because around me, nobody that I've seen has succeeded professionally, regardless of the education level. Again, that's come talked about systematic racism. When you see over and over and over again, people who go to master's, even PhD, who don't find jobs that fit the level of qualification that end up doing jobs that are telemarketers or any job to pay the bill, essentially. And it's so depressing that you start viewing yourself in the context of what you see. And it's so important that you elevate people's mind in terms of hope, possibilities. And that's why I feel maybe if you need to go train yourself and live abroad for a certain time, do it because you can come back home. You can come back to France much more empowered and with more options and choices to lead your life. If the opportunities are not provided to you in France, then you have to look for them elsewhere. And 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 eventually, it's not a matter of educating that everybody leaves because not everybody wants to leave and nobody, not everybody wants to leave their home. But it's beneficial in the long run to have those experiences because they help you get connected to who you are and they help you see yourself outside of the conditioning that you have been experiencing a subject to that dictate the view of yourself. And in my case, I was not even aware of the business school in graduating from my college undergrad degree. I only knew about HSC and all those business schools because my brother dated someone for many years who went to HSC. But in my schooling years, 
nobody ever, ever talked to me about those calls. I was not yeah. aware about those. So you opened up a new opportunities, you bring in rate and you brought in a new mindset. So it's really about helping people for the mindset. And I thought it was interesting because um, you had on your Facebook post today. I don't want any people that are have conspiracy <laughs> theorists that look at Black Lives Matter the wrong way. And I really like that because you're just standing up. I don't want this. And and it and then we had a conversation. That's really what I'd love to focus on now is what Myrtle said that I had on the podcast recently was saying that we need to be uncomfortable and we need to go through the problem because how do we discuss race? You know, I'm white, you're mm-hmm. black, you're French, you're French African. And how do we have a dialogue where we can move forward? And I think this is, really helps with businesses. What, how do we actually deal with this? How do we deal with this way of dialoguing? Yeah, it's a really great question. I think with my post, when I posted that, I really want to reinforce that I'm always open for discussion and I'm really standing up for everything that I post and I would love to debate as a true French person. But what I see is a lot of people who don't want to listen or stop to be aware. I don't pretend that I have the answers for everything. Then my point of view on relation is the point of view. And, uh, and I speak for all Black people. But I, I, I do have my experience and I, I don't understand why some people who don't know, who don't know many people like me, come and tell me how I should feel, how what I experience is not really real, and how people like me have experienced things is not really real, or it's not as important, or it's not as suffering, or not as damaging. What I have seen, I experience how it destroys lives. It's not a joke. It's not something that, oh, we get over it and we just move on. It actually destroys people's lives, people who go through depressions, people who have unhealthy relationships because they're not happy in themselves and the way they, they you know, can provide for their family. It actually have a lot of consequences that we don't really see. We just see, oh, maybe you don't get a job, but you can get another job. But what does it tell you about your self-esteem? You know, when you take somebody's self-esteem and you do it over and over and generationally, you know, it, it, it has an impact. So, I'm really open and I, and I actually had engaged a conversation on Facebook that was like, oh, look, I really want you to understand what's your perspective. Like, I don't understand. And I want to understand because the, obviously there's something that I'm missing. But when I hear the responses is, is affirmation of what you should know, what you should feel, et cetera, I, I just don't feel like people are listening. So if you want to have a dialogue, you have to start listening and start to be aware of things that maybe you're not aware and don't pretend you know everything because we all have biases, me included. Nobody is exempt of those biases. But if you say and stand that as a human being, you don't have any biases and that as therefore you never maybe have caused prejudice to somebody else, then you're not really honest and you don't want to see the truth and you don't want to see progress. And that's the difference about the dialogue we see in America. And I mean, I think there's a lot of things to be said, but when I see the the conversation unfolding around those topics between America and France, in France, I think we're still stuck into, there's no problem. We're not, we're not killing black people like they do in America. So there's no problem. (laughs) There's there's no problem, but there's no discussion. (laughs) Don't move forward. So, so yeah. So it's just like, stop and listen. If you're willing to listen, I think that's the beginning. And it, it, it really starts by awareness. There's no magic formula to, to see role models, seeing Black people and people of other minorities uh, represented at, at different level of corporations. You have to you know, look at your organization, how it looks like today and how do you want it to look like tomorrow in 10 years, in, in, in 20 years. 
And um, you don't pop up from your from from the other CEO who's by minority. If you haven't recruited them, uh, you have to be deliberate, and uh, you have to set an assessment of the situation today. Get a set of goals. There's everything we know how to succeed on something. You set up a goal, set up a plan, a roadmap. You gather your resources. You identify your risk and and, and challenges, and you go execute. You say it out loud so you're accountable for it and you go execute why we're not able to do that when it comes to diversity and, and race. It's not a huge problem. I think what's worse, though, is the invisible discrimination. Like, so yes. there's some discriminations that you can be so concrete about, like if you don't get the job or uh, you see that kind of a discrimination, stuff like that. But it's more than invisible. And, and I think really what is you're saying is listening. We need mm-hmm. to listen and truly, truly listen on how we're going to move forward that dialogue. So what would you say are some ways to bridge that? So like if you suddenly have people at the table listening, how do we bridge each other's biases? Because I think what happens so much is that we're defending our biases in the discussion, even though we're, yes. we're mm-hmm. defending ourselves within our biases. And then how do you leave your biases at the door? You have to check your ego at the door. <laughs> Check your ego at the door. Okay. You have to check your ego at the door. <laughs> because it's not about you. In this conversation, you have to drop yourself. It's not about you. It's about the other and how do you are inclusive and welcoming the other. And then you listen and then you assess and you try to find something. You co-create. We are environment. Nobody creates something by their own, on their own. You co-create. And you're trying to elevate the conversation based on personal ego. And, and, and it comes about, it's all about relationship. And very frankly, when you think about it, why people do fight, you know, relationship, co-parenting, drama situations, or it's about ego. When you place the interest of the child before the interest or your personal interest or your suffering because he did that, she did that, whatever. If you place the interest of the child before your own interest in the conflict that you are trying to solve, you'll find solution. You'll find solution that makes the common goal rise, you know, the child. It's the same thing. You have to check your ego at the door because otherwise you will never listen. You will not get a chance to listen because when you are in yourself, you may be perceiving something that somebody's pointing out and maybe you have done it, but you are trying to defend because you were hurt or you don't want to be perceived that or your values, you think your values are not aligned with your behavior. So you want to defend that. You want to want to say, I, if I did that, therefore I am. No, you can do something and not be that person or be defined by what you did. And it's not a matter like of branding. People are so afraid of being branded as racist that they're froze just to the idea that they could be associated with a, a discriminatory or prejudiced behavior. But at the end of the day, we don't really care. I mean, I always say, I don't really care about racism as long as it's not followed by prejudice like, actions because somebody who think in his mind that I am inferior or I don't have the right the same word that they have it's an opinion it's an idea and when that idea translates to action that prevent me to get an apartment where I want to live get the job that I want to have now I have a problem because you are getting to my right of freedom of living and doing the life on my term based on my fair participation in society paying tax I have the right to live where I want, whatever. So that's where I think people have to realize we're not there to, to attribute blame. When you talk about Black Lives Matter, we're not trying to, whether in the comes of France or in America, I think people just want 
to be heard. And now we have videos that really have been able to show the world that what we've been, people have been saying for, for years, decades, is happening. So people now believe us because there are videos. But if there were no videos, people would still think, oh, well, you're making too much of this. And as a person of minority, sometimes you feel like, maybe I'm seeing the wrong everywhere. Maybe I'm the one seeing that this is about my race, but it's not. So you're starting to double second check yourself every single time. And it's exhausting. It's exhausting to always think about that. You know, oh, maybe I'm overthinking this. Maybe this is sad. It's just exhausting. It is exhausting. And I think uh, you're right. So with the whole Black Lives Matter, I think the video sounded around the world with, with Flynn. You know, we were all like, mm-hmm. this is dehumanizing. And uh, in that dehumanizing, we're rising up for it. And how do we move forward from that? And I, and I really like what you said about we need to check the ego at the door. How do we actually check the ego at the door? So you're saying we need to listen. We need to check the ego at the door. And then a lot of times we, we put our ego armor on because we get uncomfortable. Yes. How do, yes. We, how do we fight the uncomfortable and the ego and then to be open to listen? As a, as a new behavior, just like a new habit, you, there's ways you can train yourself. You can uh, do self-affirmation and telling yourself that this is not about me. This is not about me. This is not about me. And you start to believe it. You can follow somebody who you feel is navigating this conversation and move more ease than you are and, and look what they're doing. Or people who are having results that you want to have, but you don't know how and look what they're doing. I think I, I have not studied diversity inclusion as a field and like, oh, what are the best practices? What can company make put in place? And I'm what, looking what for are that. they? <laughs> yes, I am starting for regular people. How do we actually converse? And it, and I think it's by talking about it that you come talking. to conclusions and expose yourself to different point of view. And I try to do that myself. I, I never know to isolate, but I, the line where I draw is where you're not questioning your own beliefs. I know now by going through learning a lot about personal development that our beliefs are just thoughts. So we need to accept that our beliefs are not truth. You have to question your belief, even if you think they are supported by evidence. Any data can be turned on one side to other, the other one. Everybody can provide a narrative with supportive argument and supportive evidence. But you need to be critical on both sides. There's two sides of the story and there's no two all white or black. Like I'm never seeing, I, I, we don't tell our kids that all cops, all policemen are bad. The telescope that all white people are bad. We are telling them there's human behaviors that are bad. And unfortunately, you can find those in different type of profession than group of people. But it's be realistic, try to, when you say uncomfortable, it's not that hard. I mean, I feel like was a, maybe a spirit person of color and minority, or I've been always been used to be the minority in the room. So I'm used to context where I'm not in the, my comfort zone or could be perceived as not in my comfort zone. Trust me, it's not that terrible. Actually, it's not that terrible. But you have to be willing to take that and accept that you're not going to be always cozy because life is not always cozy. Even if you're not talking about race or anything, there's other contexts where you can feel uncomfortable. And at the end of the day, it's where you grow. It's where everybody can expand. If you only stay in your circle, if you're only staying and thinking with the same type of people, et cetera, you're not growing. So I think it goes with sticking your, your better, your higher self. 
she was looking for your higher self, then you will look at this question, I think, in a different light. But it's nothing by just do it. You just need to get yourself in situation and conversation that feel uncomfortable. And I've noticed in America, people are debating online, but like uh, having conversation, like talking about the subject, like in real life, it's much, much more difficult. In France, interestingly, the media don't talk about those things in the way people talk in real society because we debate all the time. Are you friends uh, with? <laughs> we debate all the time and we don't we're not afraid of talking about any topic i have a very diverse group of friends whether it's in france or here and we talk about anything and there is no even if it's not uncomfortable and people are hosting very strong position we talk about everything it's just the ability to have engaged to every time you talk about something politics here people say oh i'm not political let's not talk political like people get very very defensive as something is perceived as political but you can have a stand and an opinion on societal issues without being political. You know, it's just, it's just life. Embrace those conversations. They will teach you something. That's really interesting. So what can we learn from the French then? Because I think, uh, I think uh, we could be better at dialoguing and debating. And I think the French, they're known for sitting at their cafes, <laughs> and talking, and then hours. <laughs> and then they embrace each other, even if you're on the opposite side. Yes, yes. Yes, the only thing is we don't take actions. <laughs> so you debate the action. Okay. We love we love the ideas. We talk, but we, we don't translate enough in actions. That's where we uh, that's our, our deficit. America takes America um take action, very action oriented society, result oriented society. But when it comes to talking and having comfortable conversation, people are very, very politically correct so they don't want to perceive as uh offending they don't want to be perceived as the, doing something wrong saying something wrong so they just shut up any kind of conversation there's no uh, they don't want to be in the gray and uh, a lot of stuff happen in the gray yeah a lot of things happen in the gray you're absolutely right mm-hmm. so i think we're gonna kind of come to close but this has been a great conversation because it really continues on going from uncomfortable learning from you it's really about checking your ego, listening first. But I think it's Mm -hmm. also listening to yourself, if I'm correct in what you're saying, is listening to yourself and understanding your own ego. And then to have that conversation is to check your ego at the door. And then when you are in that dialogue and co-creating with the other person that's maybe opposite to you, that's where you grow. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And set yourself goals. Goals, what do you want to, what's the outcome that you want? What when I hear companies who kind of floated the, 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 the press release the world with a statement about how they support Black Lives, et cetera, I want to challenge them in, in, in also saying, what is your goal? You know, as an organization, what does success look like in, in metrics? By when? And you doing this for any other variable that is important for your performance. But if you truly believe that diversity and inclusion is a, a driver of, of innovation or performance, of competitiveness, then you should have a goal tattoo to it. And you should not. Uh, so some funny thing that we, we've been laughing about is seeing companies, including my former employer, uh, having uh, goals or reporting on data that are global on diversity and inclusion without regionalizing data. So what does it mean to have... Say that one more time. Say that one more time. With, so having global data on diversity and inclusion, saying where we are, that's good. You have a picture of where the company stands globally, but not regionalizing the data. Because when you present a, a map of like, this is where how many 
minorities we have, like Hispanic, uh, Asian, African American, Black African Americans, etc. Globally, you include people in your company that works in Africa who are Africans, who are Black. I don't think they are diverse in right. in Africa. So we don't have much people there. <laughs> <laughs> so if your diversity stats include some executive work in Africa, I think you haven't got the point. <laughs> you haven't. <laughs> so you really need to break it down by region context. Like in Europe, diversity doesn't look the same that in Asia and in, in America and Latin America. So you have to be honest about your assessment of where you are and set up goals. Uh, where does success look like for your organization? Do you want to reach to uh, a representation that matches your, your community? You want to reach a representation that matches a na- nationwide level of representation of communities? What is your goal and by when? By when do you achieve that? Is it like a 2030 goal? Is it a 2050 goal? Is it a three-year goal? I have yet to see that, seeing all those announcements. I have yet to see those very specific targets and also serious appointment of resources to tackle those targets. So. So what you're saying really is, is that if we don't really put a metrics and a goals on it, we really don't, we don't really have an intention to do anything with it. And no, so is there any, so, yeah, so having, uh, it's very interesting. So having the support of Black Lives Matter, yes. But what are you actually going to do? What are your goals going to be? What are your metrics going to be? Yeah. How's success going to look like? And uh, you are doing this for any other variable of the performance of your organization. If it is different for gender, gender uh, equality, if you have a, a parity goal or gender goal. Company love company of promoting initiative around like let's reach 50-50 women by I don't know in 10 years or have a really specific goal. Especially in France, we had um, a, a gender parity uh, law that was um, passed to encourage uh, force companies. Um, it was like a there was a cacao and the top companies to have on their board parity, gender parity. So that kind of boosted the number of representation of women in those boards, but because there was a number, there was a target, 50% in a specific context by a certain date. There's no thing that you achieve for a business for yourself when you talk about your personal goals. You set goals, right? Same for a company. If you want to conquer a new market, you set up goals. You don't go in the vacuum and hoping something will happen. So why don't we put the same intentionality when talking about this, like it's something that's just going to happen. Um, we've talked or participating to, to conferences or appointing a chief diversity officer where you don't really give the means and the, the resources and the objectivity performance per, uh, result to, to achieve those results. So it's just something like something else. If you want to improve, you have to set up a goal. Wow. That's fabulous, Michelle. It's a great conversation. I could talk for you for hours about this. <laughs> yeah, it's like me. Thank you. And, and as a last thing, even though the conversation is a little bit different from what I usually do, I'm having this whole thing about global diversity because I got so interesting about it. Yes. Are there any words that we can use to be better bridge builders? When it comes to define, defining that topic or... Um, anything like how, what words do you really think would bridge a dialogue? Are there any words or any kind of expressions or anything that you really believe that would be important? You know, I, I, I really think that this cause for diversity inclusion is not separate from leadership. I really think that the future of leadership is at its core, the ADN, um, diversity inclusion is, is, is one of the KPRs, among other things that are on the personal attribute of the person and also on the on the the way of doing business, you know, we talk about servant leadership and all those kind of things, but I, I really think that the future of leadership 
should be relying and, and, and be based on diversity because it's not just diversity of racial background. We're talking about diversity also for education and diversity in, uh, in social background and bringing to the table different perspectives. And research after research have demonstrated that diverse group of people create the best innovation. So if you truly want to be a, a leader in, in tomorrow's world, how can it you be having that as a core foundation pillar? That's that's wow. thing. I think we're going to stop there. Amazing. <laughs> so where Thank we you. can find you, I'll put in the show notes. You've got your Rise Up Concierge place. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we'll put your Instagram and your various places that people can connect with you. Yes. So uh, LinkedIn, uh, if you're going to connect with me directly, you can look me up on LinkedIn, but also our company, riseupconseil.com. And uh, we're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I'll put we, all uh, the show notes. Yeah, you can put all the, <laughs> the links. Uh, thank you so much, Torin. It was such a pleasure to talk about my favorite topic with you. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you know at least one or two friends that would get a lot of value from this, send this episode. Or text a couple of your friends right now to WhatsApp group, post it on your Instagram stories, Facebook, or Twitter, and don't forget to tag me at Torn B. Share with anyone you think that needs to hear this message. And if you're new, please pop on over to your favorite podcast app and subscribe. Leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. And how can we prove and make this better? Or how did this help you? And don't forget to join us next week for another episode of Moving Beyond Acronyms.